I'm Robbie Baxter. I'm the director of assimilation here at Christ Community Church. I'm glad to be with you. It's good to see you all. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, this is the second sermon in our series, Grace in Unexpected Places. We started last week and we saw from Genesis chapter 3 the amazing grace that God revealed to us in, in decisively breaking the alliance that Adam and Eve had made with sin and rebellion when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and, and broke the good command that God had given to them for their life and for their health, and, and they had sided with the devil and his works, and, and God came in and broke that relationship by grace. And it was nothing to do with anything that they deserved. It was nothing to do with anything that was in their own uh, strength, anything that merited God's gracious provision to them. It was all by God's merciful, sovereign, gracious hand. And so now we're going to follow that up and, and see from Exodus 3 this same theme. And, and these are good things to see throughout the Bible for, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, our, our sermon series title, Grace in Unexpected Places, kind of, you know, it implies that there are places in the Bible and, and probably places in our lives where grace is unexpected to us, where we're not expecting to, to meet with grace. And I can think of, of at least two reasons why this might be for the case for us. And one would be just that we take it for granted. You know, we presume upon it. Grace might be sort of like the, it's like a white noise machine maybe, it just sort of humming in the background of our lives and it just sort of, we expect it to be there. Um, you know, and then it's really shocking then when it loudly intrudes upon us, you know, in the Bible or in, in our lives, because we're not expecting to see it. And, and maybe that reveals in, in many ways, you know, just the, the subtle ways in which we are still trying to live in our own strength. We're still trying to live according to uh, the dictates of our own ability to merit God's favor or merit God's attention. And, and grace loudly proclaims to us that in ourselves, we are totally unworthy of anything to do with God's mercy, of anything to do with, with God himself, of anything to do with drawing near to God. It's all by God's grace. Another reason why it might be unexpected to us is that um, uh, we're just not, we're not looking for it, you know? We're, we're we're thinking we can handle things on our own. We're thinking that uh, we don't need it. We're thinking that um, there are circumstances that where, where we've sinned. There are circumstances where we've overlooked something we're to do. We've, there are circumstances where we've not done what God's commanded us to do. And, and this has really just sort of unalterably put us beyond the pale of God's favor. So we're just not looking for it because we don't think that God could possibly be gracious to us. And we know from the Bible over and over again that this isn't the case, that God has wonderfully revealed his, his sovereign purposes to bring a people back into his fellowship. We saw it again just mercifully in Genesis 3, and yet so often we just forget about it. So often we, 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 there's a moment of, of, man, I didn't read my Bible this morning, or, or I'm coming into worship and I'm just, I'm just not feeling worshipful. And, and we think, how could God possibly be, be gracious to me? And yet we find over and over and over again that it is just in those moments when God's grace is wonderfully revealed to us because we find that it was never anything to do with ourselves. It was never anything to do with our ability to come before God and say, God, look at how uh, holy I'm feeling today. Look at how my affections are just right where they ought to be. And God says, oh yeah, that's, that's so true. Now I'm going to be gracious to you. No, it was always his sovereign action from the very beginning. And so one of the things I hope we see from our time in, the, in this sermon series is that the Bible over and over and over again puts the, the axe to the root of our false presuppositions about ourselves, about God, and about grace. And, and we see this really the moment we begin seriously to think about what grace is. Cameron challenged us to think about, you know, what, how do we define grace last week? And, and, and here's my stab at it. What, what is grace? Well, grace is the undeserved favor of God. 
So by grace, God treats us with, with kindness and, and goodness, despite the fact that we have done nothing to deserve this from his hand. And, and really, in fact, it goes further than this, because it's not just that grace is something we don't deserve from God, but that grace is actually something that's contrary to what we deserve from God. Not only, you know, we're not just blank slates that, you know, that were created by God and we're just sort of morally neutral and, and God is gracious to reveal himself to us and treat us with kindness and goodness. That would be an example of grace to be sure, but God's grace is manifested to us much more greatly than that in the fact that we're not blank slates at all. In, in, the reality is we're, rebellion. We're, we're in rebellion against God. And so God's grace is actually contrary to what we deserve. It's not just that we're not deserving of God's grace, it's that we're ill-deserving of his grace. And this is what makes the gospel so, uh, such a majestic, such an awe-inspiring, worship-inducing uh, revelation of God's grace, because it proclaims that what we did deserve, God's judgment, was laid upon Jesus at the cross. And what we don't deserve, God's mercy and, and favor and goodness, life with a, an eternal God who, who loves us infinitely in Christ and, and, and who is infinitely worthy of our worship, this life we've received because of Jesus' righteousness, which has been credited to our account so that God sees us now not as we are in our natural sinful selves, but as we are in Jesus, as, as righteous. And so that even at this very moment, we are as, as good in God's sight as we could ever hope to be. And so this is really where the, the, the sermon series sort of title comes into play when we consider Exodus 3. We find grace in an unexpected place when we see that it is only by grace that Moses is able to participate in God's plan for his people at all. We find grace in an unexpected place when we see that it is only by God's grace that God even hears his people in their slavery to begin with. We see grace in an unexpected place when we find that only by grace do God's people latch onto his word and hear him and believe him and are encouraged by that fact to go before the mightiest king in all of the world at that time and demand to be set free to go out and worship their God. We find God's grace in an unexpected place, and we see that it is only by God's grace that God provides everything the uh, Israelites as they're leaving Egypt need to sustain themselves, to sustain their, their physical selves, and, and to be able to worship him in, in purity and peace. Only by God's grace do we such find, find such favor. And so this should lead us to trust God completely with our, with our whole hearts. And the fruit of this trust is, is worship, isn't it? And, and the cause of it all is God's grace. The, the bedrock foundation of our worshipful attitudes is God's grace from, from top to bottom. So we should never suppose that we should find in our own strength, in our own resources, in our own selves, the strength needed to do what God commands. You know, either way, uh, or, or, or some way, this, this false supposition is going to cut us down one way or the other. Either we're going to try to do things in our own strength, um, assuming that, you know, we just have in ourselves the resources to obey God, and we're going to quickly find out that that is not the case. Or we're going to be so paralyzed by the, uh, the reality of our own inability to, to love as God commands us to do, to, to obey as he commands us to do. And so we'll never try to obey God to, to begin with. We'll never start on the hard, uh, difficult road of obedience. And so we will only avoid these extremes if we look away from ourselves and turn our gaze towards God and the grace that he reveals in the Bible, in who he is for us in Jesus. And so grace is really the great antidote to pride which is the king of unbelief. So I'll tell you, there, there are at least three things, three instances of grace that I think we can see in this passage. I'm sure there are many more we could talk about, but at least three. We'll talk about three today. One is that God hears his people. Another instance of grace is that God's people hear him. 
and a final instance of grace is that God provides for his people. So taking these three strands all together, I think we could say that the key truth for this passage, for Exodus 3, is that in his grace, God provides everything we need to do his will. In his grace, in his grace God provides everything we need to do his will. So let's see it from the text. Exodus chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 1. Hear God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pause there for a minute. So this passage picks up with Moses in the wilderness in a place uh, very far and very different from uh, what he had been accustomed to all in the first half of his life anyway. You know, the first half of his life was spent in the most privileged circumstances his day could possibly provide. He had been saved from death by Pharaoh's daughter, you remember, and he had been raised in the Egyptian court, and, and this meant that he was the recipient of, of the finest education and, and, and the finest clothes and the best nutrition and, and the leisure to think and reflect and, and every good thing that his day could provide in the Egyptian court. And his reflections led him to identify with the people of Israel, his people. And he saw the misery of their bondage, of their, of their slavery, and he resolved to do something about it. But, but in a moment of haste, uh, his, his ambitions were sort of left in the dust, weren't they? He, he saw an, an, an Egyptian taskmaster beating, uh, cruelly beating a, a Hebrew slave, one of his people, and, and in a moment of haste, he, he reached out and he killed the taskmaster and, and buried him in the desert sand. And, and from this moment, it really seemed like, however noble his intentions, all of his solidarity, all of his identification with his people would really come to nothing because the killing was told to Pharaoh, and, and Moses knew, man, Pharaoh knows about this, I'm a goner, and he, so he had to flee. And, and in the wilderness, life took on a very different shape from what he had been used to, you know, he, one he could hardly, I, I think, have imagined. He married the, the daughter of a desert chieftain and became a shepherd. And this was no doubt a very hard and, and different life from what he had been known to uh, or used to when he lived in such luxury and great society. It must have seemed to Moses that, uh, after all, God had forgotten him and had forgotten his people. 
But our text says that God hadn't forgotten Moses, and he hadn't forgotten the people of Israel. In a moment, the life of Moses is turned upside down. God calls to him from a burning bush. He shakes him to the core with his majesty, and he gives him, gives him a commission that, that ought to have filled Moses with, with unalterable joy from the very start. Really, consider how unlikely all of this is. Surely Moses' action in killing the Egyptian has, has put him beyond just the pale of God being able to work through him, right? Or, or surely uh, the, 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 the slavery of Israel and Egypt just means that God has, has forgotten his people. Yet here we find that God calls to Moses nonetheless. And he calls to him because God has heard the cry of his people in Egypt in the midst of their bondage. And he is moving decisively to answer them by liberating them so that they can worship him. And, and I just think reflecting upon this compels us to ask a question of ourselves. And that is, what prevents us from calling to God for help? And, and, and what does this really reveal about our attitude about his grace? You know, are there circumstances in our lives in which we just think God can't act? Whether it's because of sin or because of uh, the circumstance we're, we're going in just seems so contrary to every good thing, so contrary to uh, the promises of God, so contrary to what we expect that it just seems like, yeah, God's forgotten. But yet, that would reveal a faulty view of God's grace. It would reveal that we're not really thinking seriously about what he revealed even in Genesis 3, about the, the, the arc of redemptive history, from creation to redemption to, to consummation, that, that that is revealing God's sovereign purpose for our lives, and that nothing that happens to us, nothing that we sin, if we turn to God in repentance, can separate us from the love of Jesus. In verse 11, we see how, how different Moses has become from his earlier self, don't we? The man who years before had, had killed in defense of his people now asks God, who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? And really, this is a similar question to one of the questions that one of Moses' fellow Hebrews had, had put to him uh, right before he had fled Egypt. So remember, he killed the Egyptian, and then the next day, I, I think it was the next day, he, he comes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting amongst themselves, right? And, and Moses intervenes. He, 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 he's filled with all this righteous indignation. Why should you fight amongst yourselves? You're, you're the people of God. And, and one of the Hebrews turns to him and says, who are you that you should be a judge to us? You know? And now we find Moses in the wilderness all these years later asking basically the same question. Who, who am I? Who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? But notice God's response to Moses. He doesn't say, well, Moses, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you about how all of your experiences have prepared you for this commission that I'm giving you. Let me tell you about how all your desert wanderings have made you a hardy person who's ready to go and, and suffer with the people of Israel. Let me tell you about how your Egyptian education has perfectly prepared you to go before Pharaoh. I mean, undoubtedly, these things were true, but that's not where God starts. He simply says, I will be with you. God doesn't make for a very good televangelist, does he? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't come and say to us what we want to hear. He doesn't tell us, you have within yourself the strength needed to obey me. You have within yourself the strength needed to uh, take hold of the promises of God and really go forth with righteousness and, and, and confidence. He simply says, I will be with you. It's almost as if God really says, that's a good question, Moses. In yourself, you're not equal to this job at all. But, but, I will be with you. And because of my grace, I will use you to deliver my people out of Egypt. 
And I will use you to be a standard bearer for my revelation to the people of Israel at Sinai. And all of these good promises, I will use you because I will be with you. This commission does not rest upon Moses' strength. It doesn't rest upon Moses' talents. It doesn't rest upon Moses' ingenuity or skill. It rests upon God's grace. So God's grace does not come to comfort us by telling us how truly good we are, if only we'll believe it. God's grace is not there to give us a boost so that we can get on doing the things that God always knew we could do if we would just get along and, and do it. God's, not, God's grace does not exist to remind us that God truly and, and, and well believes in us. No, God's grace comes to comfort us by telling us that though we are sinners, God will be with us. Grace reminds us that we cannot get on doing anything unless God is with us. Hear what John uh, McKay, a good Exodus uh, commenter or commentator, has to say about this. I, I, I like this quote particularly. He says this, Moses had changed over the years. He no longer eagerly puts himself forward as the, as the deliverer of God's people. His earlier brashness has been replaced by a lack of self-confidence. What he has to learn is that lack of confidence in self must not be permitted to undermine confidence in God. He is commissioned as the Lord's deliverer, but he is not expected to carry through the task in his own strength. I think that's so important just to constantly recall to ourselves that we are not expected to carry through the task of obedience in our own strength. We can't do it. But when we lean upon the grace that God is with us, then we are enabled to find the strength, not only to believe the good promises of God, but through his power, through the workings of the Holy Spirit, to obey him, to lay hold of who he is for us. So, by grace, God hears his people. Our next point, God, by grace, God, uh, God's people hear him. Let's see this from the text, picking up in verse 13. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. We'll pause there for a minute. So, in these words, God reveals to Moses what he is to say to the people of Israel when they ask who, who has sent him, and he says, I am who I am. God is the great I am, the absolute bedrock of reality. Now, the four letters that, that make up this name, Y-H-W-H, uh, 
is where we get the name Yahweh. And that's mainly just sort of a guess to filling in the, the vowels uh, of how it would have pronounced. We don't know exactly how it would have been pronounced, but probably something like Yahweh. And, and we, could, we could talk a long time about what this main name means and, and, and all that reveals about who God is. But, but instead, let's really consider the effect that God says the revelation of his name will have upon his people. So he says that he tells Moses to tell the people of Israel not simply that um, uh, I am Yahweh or I am who I am, but also I am the God of Israel's fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this calls to mind all of the great promises that God had made to these patriarchs. And it reveals that God has not forgotten the promises that he has made to his people. God has not forgotten the people of Israel at all. And God tells Moses the effect that the revelation of his name will have on the people of Israel will be that they will listen to Moses' voice. So consider how in the text this is, this is contrasted with the response of Pharaoh. God tells Moses, God tells Moses that, that, that the people of Israel will listen to Moses' voice and that Pharaoh won't. And indeed, we see later in the story that this is exactly Pharaoh's response to Moses. He says to Moses, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Whereas the revelation of God's name compels God's people to trust and obey him, to unbelieving Pharaoh, it means nothing. Moses had asked, who am I? But Pharaoh will ask, who is God? So this is how we are apart from God's grace. This is, this is us. Left to ourselves, we think very little of God. We, we, do, we don't take his word seriously. We don't think he is very worthy to be obeyed or listened to. Certainly, we don't fear him. And our low opinion of God is really contrary to all good sense and, and reason and even our experience of, 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 of good sunny days and, and, and warm weather and, and food and all the ways in which God, through the natural order, blesses us. It's, it's contrary to all the things we receive from God's hand to ignore him. And yet, that's exactly what we do. So consider how much God's grace is exalted by the fact that Israel listens to him. Notice the contrast between unbelieving Pharaoh and the people of God. The Israelites don't listen to God because, you know, they've just had a great time. You know, they're, they're uh, as educated as they could be. They're as capable as, the, capable as they could be. They, they've experienced all these wonderful things from God's hand, and they're just really primed and ready. Oh, God's name is this? Yeah, we believe him, sure. No, I mean, if that was the, the standard, really Pharaoh fits the bill much more better, doesn't he? But yet it is oppressed and helpless Israel that responds to God's word and believes him. And this is, I think, just a marvelous exaltation of God's grace, that God would come and turn the hearts of people who are broken and burdened and lift them up by his grace, by the revelation of who he is for them, by the reminder of who he is for them, by the promises that he's made to the patriarchs. Uh, you know, Peter Hitchens, the, the brother of the late sort of acerbic atheist Christopher, Christopher Hitchens, um, and he, Peter is a, is a Christian. He says that we would not go very far wrong in calling uh, the, the modern religion, if, if you, you could say that, the, the, the modern attitude as selfism, selfism, uh, a religion all about the self. And in selfism, the question is never, what has God said? It's really, what do I think? Or maybe if we, we consult God, it's, it's really, well, what has God got from me? And when, 
as Christians, we sort of flow in this tide of selfism. We, we can turn the Bible into sort of a, a, a therapy manual, don't we? Christianity becomes therapeutized, maybe, to make up a word. And we start to think that the Bible is really all about making us feel better about ourselves, about building up our self-confidence. But when we do this, we rob ourselves of infinite help from an infinite God who speaks truth to us, truth to us not, as, not as we would wish it to be, but as it is and promises to be with us. Remember some of Jesus' uh, words just before his arrest and betrayal to his disciples in, in the Gospel of John. After telling them that he's about to be betrayed, he's about to be arrested, and, and they're going to scatter, you know, they're, they're not going to have themselves even, you think about that, you know, three years with Jesus, uh, observing all these wonderful miracles, the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and expectations, and in a moment, they're just gone. And, and he says to them, I have said these things to you, that you may have peace, in the world, you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's amazing. He says, in a minute, you'll be scattered, afraid and uncertain, and one of you will deny me, and I've told you this, so that in me, you will have peace. You see, the point of God's word is to remind us of who God is, not to cast the gaze upon ourselves, not to remind us that we have in our own strength all the resources to obey God, not to remind us of how great we are, but to set before us God, to set before us how great God is. We need God's word because we need truth. We need to know something for a verity, that when we come in on Sunday mornings and I've read my Bible, my heart isn't where it's supposed to be. I've sinned against God a thousand times and in ways I'm probably not even aware of. And, and, and man, all these circumstances, they've just got me so low. If, if our gaze was constantly on ourselves, man, these things would, would just blow us over. We'd be easy marks for the temptations of the devil. And yet God constantly points not, away, not to ourselves, but away from ourselves, to himself. He is the, the rock, the reality upon which we lean. God is with us, and that is the grace that we have to live in light of the commands that he's given us, to, to press on in obedience despite our sin, because we know that he's working in and through us to make us more and more like Jesus. So we must cast our gaze away from ourselves and towards God. And this is a great grace when we do this, that we hear God, that that is the first evidence of, of his work in our lives, that we cast ourselves uh, towards him, that when we sin, we don't run away from, from God, but we run to him. So I think this compels us to ask ourselves, do we value God's word as a means of grace? And moreover, do we seek God's help to believe and apply it to our lives? You know, we, we could talk six ways to Sunday about, you know, the, the means of grace and how, how good the Bible is for us, but if we don't value it as that. If, if we value something inherent to ourselves, we're not going to look to God to, for the help we need to live according to what he's commanded us. We're going to look to ourselves. So we must, we must hold these things as, as God holds them out to us, to grasp them as the means of grace by which we see that God is for us. And by that, 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 that grace, are encouraged to live for him. George Bush, not the, the president, the Bible commentator, um, <laughs> he says it like this. Such an assurance is the grand encouragement, this assurance being, I will be with you, God's assurance to us, is the grand encouragement of all good men engaged in declaring useful and saving truths or commanding laborious duties to their fellow men. The best words will be unregarded. Their utmost efforts will fail unless the Lord himself infuse a vital efficacy to, into them and give the hearing ear and the yielding heart to their auditors. 
So when we're trying to speak words of life to ourselves or to our neighbors, it's, 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 it's useless unless God infused a vital efficacy, which really just means he, he worked to make them real to us, to help us to understand them, to help us to grasp them and believe them and, and trust them. So we see God's grace in the fact that God's people hear him. Finally, by grace, God provides for his people. Let's see this from the text, picking up in verse 21. Verse 21. God continues, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's a funny way, isn't it, to end the chapter? But when we think about it more closely, I don't think it's funny at all. Really, it declares that God not only provides the grace that we need to know that he hears us, to know that we will hear him when he speaks to us, but he provides the grace that we will have everything we need to live for him, even down to the clothes on our backs. Not only does God declare that Israel will be set free from her captivity, but that he will get total victory over the Egyptians by plundering from them their luxuries and handing these things over to his people. And God's grace is evident in this not only because he encourages his people to trust him even in the face of cruelty from uh, the nation that was most powerful in their day, but also because he richly provides for his people so that they leave Egypt not so far from empty-handed that they have to load their children down with all the goods that they're leaving with. Consider what this means when we're able to know that God is for us. Nothing, nothing is overlooked. God knows our needs and perfectly meets them. Surely Moses did not think that he needed 40 years in the desert to prepare him for this service to God. Surely Israel did not think that they needed 400 years or however long it was in captivity in Egypt to prepare them to know God and to prepare the world to know who he is and to prepare the world to see an awesome demonstration of his grace. But the point of passages like this is to prove to us that God is always working these things for our good, even when we cannot see it. A God who will plunder the wealth of wicked Egypt for the benefit of his people has not let his people suffer for no reason. So we learn that we can always trust God because, we ne- because he never lacks grace for us. He never lacks or overlooks anything that we need, so we, that we never lack anything. So that when we go through the difficult trials of life, and it just seems like, man, what is God's purpose in this? I just don't see it. And, and, and really, that's probably most of us most of the time, right? I mean, none of us really is so holy and, and sanctified and righteous that we just go through a trial and it's like, oh yeah, I see perfectly that God's hand is in all of this, and it's going to prepare me to, to wor- be a more worshipful lover of God. It's going to prepare me to witness to my neighbors more fully. No, we're always taken aback. I mean, we could hear God's promises over and over again, and it seems like no matter what, we're always taken aback and say, man, what is God's purpose in all of this? I don't, I don't see it. And yet we see in, in concrete instances like this, little verses like this where God says, I'm going to provide for you so richly that you will have to load your kids down with all the goods that you leave Egypt with, that God is not a harsh God. God is not working these things because he's forgotten about us. God loves us. And if he will plunder Egypt such that his people leave Egypt with lacking really nothing, then we can trust him that even in the hard periods of life, he is for us. And he's working these things together for our good so that we will love him more, so that in his happy kingdom, we'll never lack for anything. And we'll, like Paul said, we'll, we'll get to the end of it all and we'll say, man, I never made a sacrifice. 
It's, it's hard now, but that will be the reality. And, and God proves it to us again and again. And here we have a wonderful instance of it. So it compels us to ask a final question. Do we give thanks to God for material blessings? Do we see these as evidences of his gracious provision to us? Think about the great danger when we get this wrong, when we sort of flip that script. When we see material blessings as not God's grace to us, but really, um, you know, the, the fruits of our own labor in our own selves, um, we, we set ourselves up for disappointment when those things are taken away from us. We think, well, man, that just goes to prove that I lost it because I didn't work hard enough or, or God doesn't love me well enough. It's proof that God has forgotten about me. But when we recognize, on the other hand, that everything we have, we have by God's grace, from you know, our health to our jobs to our houses to our clothes to our cars to whatever, we will not be so easily discouraged when we go through trials, when these things are taken away, when they're jeopardized. We will recognize how abundantly God lavishes his people with good things. We will remember that he does this because of who he is and who we are in Jesus. And we will be better able to trust him, trust him that he's true when he says that he's working all things together for our good. So if we will be a people who will worship God no matter what we go through, no matter what comes our way, we must be a people that are familiar with and constantly reminding ourselves of his grace. John Calvin, this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's good to pay, pay some heed to it because I think he sums up in a way that Calvin usually can just how, uh, the, how God is exalted in this. He says this, This passage contains rich and extensive doctrine that whenever men cruelly rage against us, it does not happen contrary to the design of God because he can in a moment quiet them. And he grants this license to their cruelty because it is expedient thus to humble and chasten us. Again, we gather from hence that we have no enemies so fierce and barbarous as that it is not easy for him to readily tame them. If we are surely persuaded of this, that men's hearts are controlled and guided by the secret inspiration of God, we should not so greatly dread their hatred and threatenings and terrors, nor should we be so easily turned from the path of duty through fear of them. And I would add that it's not just that we will be easily, we will be able to, to stand against the cruelty of, of the wicked, but that we'll be able to withstand against the cruelty of circumstances that seem hard. When we know that God is for us even in these circumstances and that he in a moment can turn things around, in a moment he appeared to Moses in the wilderness, in a moment he, he heard the people of Israel, in a moment he delivered them from uh, their bondage in, in, in Egypt, in a moment God can turn the circumstances in which we're going through that seem difficult and hard, in which it seems that God has forgotten us around. And when we remember this fact, we will not be so easily discouraged, but we'll remember that God is for us in all of these things. So, Exodus chapter 3 teaches us at least three things. They are, one, our knowledge of God's grace should lead us to call to him for help. Our knowledge of God's grace should lead us to call to him for help. Two, our knowledge of God's grace should lead us to listen to his word and obey it. And finally, our knowledge of God's grace should lead us to thank him for all that we have. God's grace is wonderful. We can never say too much about it. We can never lean upon it too much. Precisely because without it, we are unable to do anything good. We are unable to come to him as he uh, 
commands us to come to him. We're unable to worship him as we ought to worship him. Uh, and yet we see over and over and over again from Genesis 3 when the story begins to uh, Exodus 3 as the story continues that God is for his people and everything, that he provides everything we need to do his will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, help us not to take it for granted. Help us not to presume upon it. Help us to recognize that in ourselves we are exactly opposite to everything that we ought to be, that we are rebellious sinners. But in Jesus, in you, we are being made new. And that by your grace, you call us to worship you. And we can do that. And we can enjoy you forever. Help us to set our eyes not upon ourselves. Help us not to try to boost up our self-confidence. Help us to have confidence in you. Help us to have God confidence, which is the only kind of confidence that can withstand the trials of the world, that can withstand the temptations to sin. Help us to be the kind of people that more and more look to you and away from ourselves, that more and more trust in the strength that you provide. And may this strength in you help us to be a part of the work you are doing, to draw people to yourself, to grow your kingdom, and to glorify your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.